I'm James from Rare Cancers Australia, and welcome to our first episode of Radio Rare, the podcast where we share the stories of those in and around the rare and less common cancer community. Rare cancer patients quite simply don't fit into the current healthcare system, and over the next 10 weeks, we will look deeper into the issues that hold rare cancers back from having parity with the access, treatment pathways, timely diagnosis, and the overall survival that common cancer patients experience. We talk to patients, their families, experts, and game changers on the current state of RARE. On today's episode, we chat to RCA's CEO and co-founder, Richard Vines. We had that, that challenge that every family has, which is how do, how do, how do I go out and, um, and make money? Um, and is looked after at the same time and it's a problem that, that, that many families face. Reporting today is RCA's Dr Emily Isham who spoke with Richard and discussed his role as a carer. Behind every organisation there are founders who seem to have a set drive, a passion and a belief to what they're looking to achieve. We see it time and time again. Over the past eight years, Richard and Kate Vines have definitely built not only an organisation looking to help Australians affected by these rare and less common cancers, but also a legacy of humility and generosity. But how did they get to where they are today? And what experiences have helped to craft the people they've become? Most people don't know that Richard has been himself a carer for more than 30 years, and he has seen not only the ultimate highs, but the lowest of lows along the cancer journey. If you have never heard of a rare or less common cancer, it's described in Australia as one which has fewer than six diagnoses per 100,000 of the population. And a less common cancer is one which has fewer than 12 diagnoses per 100,000 of the population. Each year, more than 52,000 Australians are diagnosed with a rare or less common cancer. That's 144 people per day, or one person every 10 minutes. Rare or less common cancers also claim the lives of over 25,000 Australians each year. A high point that Richard started with today is the exact moment Rare Cancers Australia was created. The fact that I'm a carer and the fact that Kate is a patient has everything to do with why Rare Cancers Australia exists. We sat in a uh, in a room with Kate's oncologist, Ben Brady, in 2011, it was then, and he said, you know, I think rare and less common cancer patients get a very raw deal in so many ways, um, and would you guys consider setting up a charity to support them? And clearly we never had, we'd oh, wow. never worked in health, we'd never done anything in that space. Um, I was working in, in a quasi-political environment. Kate was, um, was working in that environment too, and it was just completely foreign to us. Um, and, as Jan- and so we thought, thought about it and said, no, we're, we're not the right people. Um, weirdly enough, about two months later, I got offered a job as CEO of a health organization, something called the Gut 
Foundation in New South Wales. We were based in Melbourne at the time. And I thought that's an interesting change and an interesting direction. So I, I took that on and I worked at that. We moved ultimately to Barrel where we are now and I took it on for six months. And, um, uh, and at the end of six months, I decided it wasn't for me. And I went home to Kate on June 25th, 2012. We talked about rare, setting up something for rare cancer patients. Um, and I, I had had six months to look at what patient organizations do and what's possible. And I thought, yeah, we could do something here. We understand politics. We understand the lived experience. And, uh, and we've got a few... I've got a few miles on the clock, so we've got some experience, and um, we could we could maybe make this work. And so I think it was about by June 27, June 28, we had Rare Cancers Australia Limited formed. We had um, we were up, we were running, we were talking to people about building a website, and it just happened really, really quickly. Born experience, the essence of why so many organisations and businesses begin in the first place. Richard's experience as a carer dates back to the late 80s when his late wife, Kerry, was diagnosed with breast cancer in 1987. The knowledge surrounding the disease was certainly far from what it is today, and the challenges that Kerry and Richard faced are similar to what many rare cancer patients go through every day now. In the late 80s, um, my partner at the time, Kerry, was um, diagnosed with breast cancer and we was around 1987 and she died in 1990 and that was at a time for breast cancer patients but thankfully has long passed where there was there was there wasn't much knowledge of cancer in those days uh, but there was certainly no external support organizations that were focused in the way that people like the breast cancer network are today and and I I think it is it is wonderful that that people who are uh, suffering from breast cancer have such such huge amount of support and, and they provide a great inspiration for us. And I think over time, people have come to understand that that when patients are suffering metastatic disease or advanced cancer, the need for support is so much greater. Kerry's experience was, was uh, went for a little over three years. Uh, it, was, it was incredibly challenging. Um, and you come out, I think, any time that you're close to someone who goes through that process. You come out of it with a different a different perspective, maybe slightly different values. You realize what is truly important. And, um, and that certainly happened to me. And I didn't know much what to do with it at that point. And then I I, I met Kate in 10 years later at dinner and uh, we were getting along very well. And then she decided that she should tell me that that she was a cancer patient, which was um, somewhere between the main course and dessert, and uh, that was that was quite quite dramatic. But it has been a different lived experience. She was diagnosed in 1990, not a, or 1991, uh, and so she's lived with cancer for 28 years and has, has had um, sort of chronic and recurring experience. And I think both of them speak to the same thing as a that people as carers need to get their head around that it's we've all cared for a child with a fever we've all cared for an elderly parent uh, who may be sick but when you've got a, a partner with a can on a cancer journey it's going to last for years and it's going to change your life for years and it's going to impact you at times it's almost like coming ready or not you know it's it's um get to choose you just have to go with the flow and react and sometimes you'll feel like you're living a fully normal life as perhaps Kate and I were 
a little over 12 months ago when we first noticed that there were, you know, she had pain reappearing and she was um, clearly, after a, a long period of, of remission, the cancer was back moving again. So your life just changes in a heartbeat. Tying in with the challenges comes uncertainty, fear for what the future holds. However, a lot of the time, a patient and their caregiver don't have to go on the cancer journey alone, as there can be support networks around you. In Kerry's case, we had a, um, her mother was a, was a great source of strength um, because we had extended periods at home and we, we had that, that challenge that every family has, which is how do, how do, how do I go out and, um, and make money? Um, and she is looked after at the same time, and it's a problem that, that many families face. Uh, I was fortunate. I ran my own software company. That's my background is IT. And I was able to move the office to the building next door to where we lived. And so I was, was able to pop between the two environments. But uh, her, her, Kerry's mother was, was, was basically there every day when she wasn't in hospital. And um, somehow we, we managed to get through that. But it was um, very challenging and it brings always brings into focus for me that it's not just, you know, the, the experience of the patient is, is what it is and it's, it's awful. But for all of those around, there are complexities and, and logistical challenges and financial challenges. And we, we say a lot, I, I try to say a lot of care cancers that we'll leave the doctors and the nurses to look after the patient. But when, what we try to focus on is looking after the person and the family because they are always impacted by, by any patient's cancer. As well as managing day-to-day tasks around the appointments, medications, and what the nurses and doctors say, joining the financial challenges and the logistical challenges of working are also the social challenges. Interactions with friends change, relationships change, and this is not always an intention. One of the things that I think is, which people going through it just probably have to be aware of is at some point your social group they don't mean to but eventually they withdraw mm. they they pull back so that the number of visitors falls away because the conditions around which you can come are you know uh, are tricky you if you if uh, as in Carrie's case and ultimately she was immobilized she was bedridden and um so I remember one night we managed to organize a dinner party around her bed but we only got oh, wow. to do that once and, and, you know, it wasn't like we could all meet up with the social group that we had and, and go to the football and it wasn't like she could go off to the gym with all her friends as she used to do. So all of these things slowly, slowly shut down and, and friends have a, you know, it doesn't shut down for friends. So they, they tend to, they tend to become a little bit more remote and, and that's without even considering the, the possibility of a, you know, the fact that cancer is a hard topic and certainly um, cancer as an incurable disease and with, with death as a possibility, then people do get really uncomfortable. So I think that's, that's really hard. I think that's one of the reasons we're working very hard in RCA now to set up peer-to-peer groups. We've, we've got some of that going and we're trying to get more and more because it's not just just the lived experience of treatment. Um, it's the social engagement with people who are happy and comfortable talking about the disease, um, the possibility of a, of a poor outcome, uh, all of these things. The other one was, which I think anyone who's been a carer will know that there is 
from, and I, as I said, I worked for myself, but I still had, I had clients, um, and people's tolerance of the fact that you are slightly less reliable and predictable because you're taking your partner to hospital or to an appointment can wear very thin in a very short period of time. And people will say to you, for example, last year, we, we didn't run a couple of events that we would have run normally because Kate had progressed with her cancer. She was We were looking to get her on a clinical trial and it was just not a time to do much. And, and by no means complaining, but just in terms of being open, you can feel that, that the tolerance for that, whilst it was incredibly generous at the start, people were starting to say, well, yeah, yeah, it didn't happen last year, so when's it going to happen this year? And 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 if you if you're not living it, if you don't understand it, it's very difficult to to empathise with someone who is working as a carer and trying to do other things as well. And it just takes a lot of tolerance. Basically, you know, the steady march of life and the world tromps on, and and uh, and you sort of duck in and out as you can. And um, we've we've been very fortunate this year with Kate that she's um. She's responded well to the clinical trial, so so we're we're comparatively normal to where we were eight or nine months ago. With strain placed on reliability and predictability, it's easy to slip away from the day-to-day interaction with others. But this isn't always the case, and occasionally you are able to regain a community within your social groups amidst difficult times. Our focus has been. And I would not be able to say whether this was a consequence of, of my experience with Kerry and Kate's experience with her disease. But uh, we have we have a extremely good solid group of people through our work uh, that we engage with and regard as friends. We have between us we have three kids and six grandchildren with whom with whom we are, which are really the sort of focus of our life. So yeah, I think you. I think you could say we've we've managed it okay. Is it the same as it was twenty years ago before all of this? Thirty years ago before all of this unravelled in my life, um, probably not. I think you, you. It's hard, and I think it's a word that you've got to work really hard at. It's hard not to come out of an experience where you take your partner or a loved one through through cancer. It's hard not to come out pretty angry at the end of it, and mm. that mean that you can walk away from relationships because you see them you can see people as having let you down and and that's you know that's not helpful um it it is it's i can't say i didn't do it but probably if i had my time again i'd be a little bit more generous and a little bit more forgiving um and a little bit more empathetic of understanding where they landed but at the time it was uh i you you did kind of feel like walking away uh, and um, mm. I have one great experience when I the software that I wrote and, and implemented was and, and sold and we had a, very briefly we, I ran a business which had about a hundred um, law, law firms around the country running my software and I remember right in the last one or two weeks of Terry's life I had a, a partner from a law firm on me on the phone to me complaining that his trust account couldn't balance, which is a big deal for a law firm, in fairness. And um, and I said, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. And, you know, I just, right now I just need some time. And his, his response was, Richard, I know you've got your problems, but I need this sorted now. And and it would be, it would be no exaggeration to say that is the last conversation I ever had with him. And his, his request, you know, with 30 years of hindsight was probably not that unreasonable, but it was, it probably lacked a little empathy, which is probably is where yeah. I would say. And um, yeah, you move on and, and and rebuild over time. Living in a country like Australia, 
where there is so much available and very little goes wrong with what can be managed, there's not really a lot of suffering that's being displayed. People do have trouble dealing with it. Knowing what to say can be tricky. And people pull away because they're worried they're going to say the wrong thing or get it really wrong. With 30 years of hindsight, being at the receiving end of responses and somewhat valid requests that seemed so jarring and lacking empathy at the time, it's hard not to wonder if Richard found the whole experience, first with Kerry and now with Kate, whether it's changed his character. I don't know if it's changed it, but I think it changed focus in the sense that at, at that time, I mean, the next thing I was going to do with that business was probably take that software product. For those who are interested, the, the way that legal practice is conducted in this country is very similar to the way it's conducted everywhere else throughout the British Empire. So I was interested in, in building an export business. And, and, and it was all about building a big, successful enterprise and making, you know, at the end of that, having having financial success. And I think it, it, it changed me in the sense that, that I'm much more interested now in building a, a very successful charity that, um, that does a lot of good for a lot of people. And um, if, it, if it had to do anything, which it occasionally does, which Rare Cancers does do stuff internationally, it's about helping other other groups like Rare Cancers get better at what they do. So I think, that, I think, I think it probably taught me to redefine what success in life is. Coming up after this short break... I can remember making this very, very clearly to on an interview on ABC when they said, oh, well, you know, we can't fund everything. It costs too much. You know, it'll just cost too much to fund their cancer patients. I said, no, it doesn't. It's the same drug. That's coming up after these words from our patient support team. Hello, this is Ailey at Rare Cancers Australia. How can I help you today? Hi, I was just wondering if you could help me with. Our specialist cancer navigators can help you with the challenges that come with a rare cancer diagnosis. Our services are free and there is no criteria for accessing support from us. We understand that every situation is unique and no two people are the same. If you have been diagnosed with a rare or less common cancer, our patient support team look forward to hearing from you. Call us on 1-800-257-600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Welcome back to Radio Rare. When we left, Dr Emily and Richard were discussing the challenges and life-changing experiences which pose big questions to the person you want to become. Dr Emily Isham continues her conversation with Rare Cancer's CEO and co-founder, Richard Vines. Talking about Rare Cancer's work overseas and wanting to create that community for people, it comes across very much like Richard's heart is very philanthropic, good at giving, good at being generous. But what has he found that has nurtured and supported him through all the difficult times with both Kerry and Kate? I've had I've had this conversation with one of our board members. One of one of the board members of Rare Cancers is a, a wonderful man called Mark Brennan, who was the previously the Australian Small Business Commissioner. And we've talked about we've talked about our upbringing because we went to school together. And I was I was although I'm not spiritual 
anything anymore. I was raised as a um, I was raised as a quite a strict Catholic, and um, I was launched with a set of values that are pretty solid Christian values. And and I think there's a whole lot of you know there's a whole lot of lines um, around New York. You can take the boy out of New York, but you can't take the New York out of the boy. And I think that's there's a little bit of that with Catholicism. I think you know if you spend 40 minutes a day being told and being taught that there there is a there is a fundamental need for us to love each other and care for each other that even as it gets overwhelmed by by the day to day of trying to make a living and trying to be successful and trying to cope with society somewhere underneath that all of that this this fundamental humanity lives and breathes and 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 I think that um I think that when I, I reached a point when I got got through the stage of worrying less about money and more about people, then I, I think that I finally got it, that uh, this is where I kind of wanted to be. And, and it, it's, it's just a kinder, gentler version of the same person. But yeah, it took a while to get there. I think, it takes, I think it takes every young man a while to grow up and realize that the important things in life are people and the ones you love and the ones you care about, not what the guy across the road thinks of you or what your boss or your, or your underlings think of you. you know, it's about it's just basic human kindness. So where do you now, where do you find rest? I know that you and Kate have talked about your gardening before. Do you find that there are places that you can go that really take you away from the world of cancer, that you can really genuinely feel nurtured? Yeah, yeah look, I think, I don't know that it's nurtured. I, 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 think it, I think one of the great challenges is getting away. I think gardening is, there is nothing, the closest thing I do to meditate is mow the lawn. It is a complete, it's not quite an out-of-body experience, unfortunately, but it's pretty pretty much a distraction from everything else. Um, I've started to play golf again, which I, I, I think will be a, um, which is again one of those things. It's very hard when you're being tormented by a small white ball in, in <laughs> ways that, that only it can imagine. It's very hard to kind of, you know, to consider and focus on anything else. I think we have, as the team's built, we're in a really great position in that we have as you know, and as you're part of, we have people working in RCA now that have at least equal or exceed our passion for the task, and and that gives us chance to step back and and relax because we know it's it's working, uh, and that's that's just a huge relief, and and we know that we have you know good support externally. So nearly eight years in, it's kind of we can take a breath. This will go on after us, and. Um, ever consider putting a time on when after us is but but it will come on after us and it will be it will be something that lives on and helps a lot of people over a long period of time it's clearly apparent that helping people is of utmost importance for richard and he looks to instill this in the daily work of staff at rare cancers australia following on from this I was keen to know whether Kate having a rare cancer has led to more focus being on the rare and less common cancers rather than more broadly cancer as a whole. We were drawn to it because it was pointed out to us by Ben Brady that there was a need. I think it was a combination of two things. It's like, again, the sort of background of uh, upbringing and coming from, you know, um, not quite the log cabin story as uh, people like to say, but coming from a sort of comparatively poor working class family, you're pretty much always 
looking out for the underdog or you're thinking about the underdog. And, and so once we, once we actually opened our minds to what was going on and why, how the health system worked and why it doesn't always work that well for rare cancer patients, then the passion just, just flowed in because this is fundamentally an injustice. Um, it is, uh, there's no other way to put it. If 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 mm. we've designed, and I can understand why, and I think governments have to do things, but we designed a health system that does the greatest good for the greatest number. So so we put research into more common diseases. We put um, we make sure supply and, and availability of medicines for for more common diseases is 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 readily available, and and we neglect both in research and in provision of treatment and, and, and therapies. We, we, we've neglected rare cancer patients. Now, the point that I made, I can remember making this very very clearly to on an interview on ABC when they said, oh, well, you know, we can't fund everything. It costs too much. You know, it'll just cost too much to fund rare cancer patients. And I said, no, it doesn't. It's the same drug. And we have this crazy situation where, you know, a drug like, uh, Keytruda, which is currently available for half a dozen indications, being one of them being melanoma, one of them being uh, lung cancer, uh, and a couple of others, in, increasingly, thank goodness, has so, shown signs of having application and efficacy among 29 different cancers. But it's only available, I think, in Australia now, after about four years, for, for half a dozen. And it doesn't cost any more to treat someone with salivary gland cancer, adenocystic carcinoma. It doesn't cost any more to give them Keytruda than it does to give a melanoma patient. The problem is the system about how we decide to reimburse and fund that patient. But that patient can be the one who has worked all his life, paid all his taxes, supported our health system, supported our education system, done everything right. But at that one point in time, when his clinician wants to treat him with a drug, as compared to the guy next to him who has melanoma, one will pay $30, $39 a month, and the other one will pay $10,000. Um, or even have to go overseas, hey. Or even have to go overseas, Emily. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, and that's unacceptable. We will be relentless in trying to work out a system that makes sure that, that that doesn't happen. And, you know, in the context of right here, right now, um, where we have to talk to and help people who now can't go overseas because of coronavirus, we have to work to build a health system that, that can compete with other health systems. One of the challenges listening to Greg Hunt the other day is that they had a, had an order in, and I think it was in this case only for face masks, but they got gazumped. I think the Americans decided they needed them for themselves. We need to be conscious that at all times, because we have this strange intersection of large multinational companies providing health therapies and health technologies, um, that they will be choosing which countries they want to go to. And we must we need to compete and stand up and say, hey, we're a really good place to be. We don't have to get you know, taken advantage of by doing that, but we also have to be cognizant of the fact that all roads don't lead to Canberra. An issue that rare cancer patients are finding consistently is the lack of knowledge and shared information. Currently, the coronavirus is causing a lot of anxiety in and around the rare cancer community. And this lack of information is also common, usually outside of these unfamiliar times. There appears to be a lot of obstruction to getting expertise in areas inside the Australian healthcare system. I, I think in, in the case of Kerry, it was, 
was very early on. Um, we, um, some of your listeners may know that I co-chair a number of um, initiatives, being one being the National Oncology Alliance, one being uh, something called Orcan, and, and um, both of those with um, a guy called Professor John Zolzberg. And um, he, as it happened, and, and I didn't see him for about 20 years, but he was Kerry's oncologist, uh, a very young Professor John Zolzberg, and if you, um, you have a lot more hair uh, and a lot less wrinkles <laughs> as we both did, but um, uh, and he was he went on to become the, the head of medicine, the chief medical officer at, at Peter McCallum, and uh, so we were when when he was dealing with Kerry, he was he was young, but he was he was clearly brilliant and had a great career, and we were very fortunate. And his and her surgeon was was equally a general surgeon who carried out the mastectomies was um, was really good and really sensitive to the needs around things like scarring and, and just had a, a wonderful empathy for, for the needs of patients. And, and sadly, we don't always see that. Mm. You know, it's to be encouraged when we do. It, it's, uh, it's it, there's a lot more, uh, in my view, there's a lot more that could be done in terms of building that, that empathy and understanding and, and communication skills into our clinicians as they go through as they go through the, I mean, it takes 10 years, I guess, to be an oncologist, at least six to get through basic medicine and then another thereafter. So at some point, you think we could probably give them some training and develop their their, um, their communication skills to make some of these things easier. Um, I think that I'd mm. like to think happening now, but we were certainly, John was, you know, did a wonderful job. And for, for Kerry, I think, it's, uh, for Kate, it's been, you know, Kate, from diagnosis in 91 through to about 2004 did not have an oncologist because because it was so rare yeah because she had a GP and a surgeon and you know and and I've often described to people and you've got to look at medical specialists if you've got if you go to a radio oncologist they're probably going to give you radiation oncology if you go to a medical oncologist they're probably going to give you a medicine if you go to a surgeon they're probably going to operate and you need to be aware of that, and you might need to sometimes. So, um, so in Kate's case, she went in the early days, and they they operated on her, and and if she hadn't stopped them, stopped the surgeon, he would have just kept chopping bits off. Uh, but she ultimately said, "No, I've had enough of that. I'm not doing that anymore." And she went off, and but she didn't ever get referred to an oncologist um, or an endocrinologist in her case. But uh, in, in fairness to them, there wasn't a lot of treatment around. But you know. You don't know. It, it, it was someone falling through the cracks. No one should ever go through that mm. kind of process. No one should ever have cancer and not have an oncologist, and that was the case even then. But, um, yeah, you, 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 as a patient, you, you don't necessarily know that. And it's not it's not uncommon. It's, it's where I had a friend I was talking to the other day who's a melanoma patient, and, and she's not completely adopted by you know, an oncologist yet, and we're working to get her one. She lives in, and not doesn't live in New South Wales, and we're working to get one who's a specialist in in her disease in her town. Um, and it's one of the things that that we that we're very capable of doing. We have a great a great list of of people who specialise in in rare cancers, and uh, and it's it's pretty important. That's the old story about it. You should always ask your surgeon how many times he's done this operation because if he's never done it before compared to having done it a hundred times, then um, your chances of surviving it are about 25% increased. 
you do not want to be you do not want to be the the first guinea pig. But you know, having said that, someone's got to do it at some point. Someone's got to, someone's got to be first. But it's just you can avoid mm. it being you, or if it's going to be you. You're under make sure he's under good supervision. It's in his role as a carer that Richard has personally witnessed the gaps in PBS funding and the difficulties in obtaining financial support from the government, a common issue that we find patients dealing with time and time again in the rare and less common cancer community. Yeah, it was interesting. It was it was part of the process by which we, we stopped and reflected last year. We, we had a lot of success with improving research funding in rare cancers, and we had a lot of success in building awareness around the challenge of rare cancers. But when Kate progressed and we stopped and looked at treatments that were available, there still, after seven years, wasn't one reimbursed through the PBS. So our best option was for her to be accepted onto a clinical trial. And we, we obviously knew there was a clinical trial running. It's one of the services we provide, try to provide at rare cancers. And she was enrolled on a clinical trial, which means she's being treated um, at no cost. Had she not, then it is highly probable that we would have been paying or trying to pay $10,000 a month right now. Gosh. Um, mm. and, um, and so that what that did was I made sure I made sure the motivation stayed very high and we were, you know, made, me, made us both a bit grumpy. But um, having got through that, we then thought, well, we, we need to do something. We need to do something different to bring this to a head with government. And that's what we're trying to do at the moment with uh, a piece of work that we hope to launch in, in Parliament House in August. We're looking for patients who want to contribute and have, a, have, a, have their voice heard. And um, I know that it's somewhere up. Yeah, at the end of this, you'll say that if people want to want to talk or want to be involved, they should either ring our one eight hundred number or or email support at rarecancers.org.au. The last six months have been quite challenging for both Richard and Kate, given that Kate's restarted treatment, and Richard is now back as an active carer again. They've found it difficult to manage juggling the logistics of this alongside continuing to run this organisation. We've tried a few things. We did uh, in 2019. We tried. We appointed a general manager, and that that didn't result in the outcome um, that we all would have liked. Uh, I think part of the challenge for us is that we live in we live in Barrel, and, and even if people, you know, when people agree to relocate here, that doesn't always work out. And so, when that lady decided to leave, we sort of sat down and had a look and thought we've got really good leaders in our organisation who are pretty passionate and committed. And um, uh, Christine is, is, um, has increasingly and virtually completely taken over the, the, the day-to-day running of the, the patient care, patient navigation team from, from Kate. Uh, yeah. Kate now works, works as a kind of old wise head uh, and, um, and helps with particular areas of patient care and navigation where, where uh, eight years of driving people mad is, is still highly, highly valuable. Um, <laughs> and um, for me, um, we've got a really great team in, in, in events. We've, we've, we've hired people like, like you in terms of, you know, really, really highly professional, highly qualified people to provide content and, and context. Amanda Roos, who's now our head of policy is, you know, uh, 
has a PhD in immunology and has worked for one of the big four accounting firms and a couple of pharmaceutical companies and, and is probably one of the most knowledgeable people in the country. And all of you, all of the team are there for the same reason. Nikki Kerr, who, who runs all of our major relationships with, with our large corporates, including the pharmaceutical industry, are all there because they are either passionate about the cause of cancer patients, and we're not discriminatory, it doesn't matter if they're rare or not, we're, we're, uh, or they've experienced it, or they've lived it, or they understand it and they want to make a difference. And we had a, had an event recently where where we had our teams presenting to our board, and and the one thing that the board kept saying was how how absolutely impressed they were at the levels of ownership that our staff take of what they do, and and that makes it really easy for me. I just have to. Mm. Um, you know, it 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 is. I think if you're going to work in a in a charity and cancer charity in particular, it's not a you can't just be a job. People need a life outside, and they need to do things. But there is a there is a passion and intensity that that, that all aspects of it need to be need to bring, and um, uh, and they do. You know, um, Jackie, who runs our finance, is is ferocious mm. because people are just as happy. Bad people are just as happy to take money off charities as they are off any other. Mm. And you have to you have to be. Where yes, we're a not-for-profit, but we also have to be a not-for-loss. So there's a lot of mm. a lot of moving parts that put it all together. And right now, it's in a really good place. And the person I suppose I should mention at the end of this who makes it all absolutely work is is my EA Lydia, who, mm. who manages to. Um, I knew I decided I needed a new. Uh, I decided I needed to have to bite the bullet and hire an EA. The day I had three appointments all scheduled for two o'clock on the, at the same time. <laughs> in different states, I, have, right? I have lost control. So yeah, it's just, <laughs> just sometimes it's like you um, you wonder, you know, you look back and it seems to have gone so quickly, and you wonder how did it how did it grow, how did it happen, and and uh, are we you know, are we really responsible for bringing it here? And I think it is. It's a hugely, I mean, incredibly proud of the organisation, incredibly proud of what it does and every day. Every day when one of our people talks to a patient or a carer who who wants to talk or needs help uh, and we, we're able to respond, it's something that you know, you just you just treasure. And uh, I, I I get I get up at this time um, more easily in at this stage of my life, which is well past any one who's listening to this, uh, and I get out of bed and I do go to work much more energized than I've probably ever been at any other time in my life. From Ralph Waldo Emerson, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, this is to have succeeded. And with that final quote from Richard, we will have scenes from our next episode of Radio Rare after these words from our patient support team. Our patient support team know that a rare cancer journey is different. We understand it can be hard to find good information, difficult to connect with others in a similar situation, and that you might need someone to chat to about everything that's going on. We are here to listen. We understand Rhea and you are not alone. Contact our patient support team on 1800 257 600. Next time on Radio Rare, Dr. Emily Isham will speak with health industry professional Paul Cross 
as we dive into behind the scenes of the approval process around cancer pharmaceuticals. Let's just say it doesn't run like clockwork. Can you imagine a system where you, you had a heart attack and your neighbour had a heart attack and you went to a hospital and your neighbour got treated but you didn't get treated? Mm. Now that's an extreme example, right? But that is how some patients experience the system. So the person in the room next to them can get access to a drug and because their cancer is slightly different, they don't. And all because of the interpretation of an economic model that is highly variable. Radio Rare is produced in-house at Rare Cancers Australia and is hosted by Dr Emily Isham and me, James Matthews. Thank you to today's guest, RCA's very own CEO and co-founder, Richard Vines. The show is produced by me and Alex Smith. We are edited by Christine Cockburn. Reporting by Dr Emily Isham. And our episode music is from Audioblocks. To keep up to date with future episodes or listen to past episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Simply search Radio Rare or Rare Cancers Australia and click the subscribe or follow button at the top of the page. Then when we release an episode, you will receive a notification or the episode will go directly onto your phone. Thank you for listening and we'll be back shortly with our next episode. Bye for now.